Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 92 is recorded live December 1st, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. This week, some of the articles that we have is uh, hyperbaric treatment for dogs. We have the marine vocational training through the scouting organization. We have divers inspecting wells. And we also have an announcement of a big type of fine, but we'll have that towards the end of the news. Keep everybody in a little suspense. Anybody who's following probably shouldn't be too surprised. And to help me with all this mess, we have... Mac, our dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, we we missed the snow. We had snow coming through here. Uh, saw cars with snow on it, but we didn't get any. Better them than us. Exactly. So, uh, well, early in the year, I thought that we were going to be getting hit with the snow very early on. It seems like we have dodged it for the time being. Absolutely. I feel really guilty, though, not about I didn't go diving yesterday or today, and those have been ideal days. Oh, yeah. We, we've got weather that you just don't get too much of in December. In fact, I was pulled up to the shores of Lake Michigan yesterday and said, you know, if we still had a boat in the water, we could have actually gone out. Yes. Several people mentioned that to me. <laughs> well, great minds thinking alike. So, well, something about one more dive on the wreck. <laughs> huh. Is, is that something serious? Is that is people talking about that? Well, yeah, that and dive in that quarry. That yeah. was from the night. Yep. So we've, we've got quite a bit tonight in a lively chat room. So we want to get into the news so we can get through the news and onto some, some good stuff. So this first article, which as always, we're going to paste this into the chat room. Hyperbaric chamber for dogs. Not necessarily scuba related other than the hyperbaric chamber, but I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I've always loved just the idea of what a hyperbaric chamber can do and as divers uh, it can be a lifesaver for us but this is uh, uh, they're using it on dogs uh, the, in, a, in the one case in the article they had Piper was mauled by another dog and left with a huge wound that wasn't healing. Uh, the owner said she had closed surgeries four times every time it closed and reopened uh, this treatment has been used for the bends and scuba diver conditions as we know and it helps heal humans wounds uh, the hyperbaric chamber is helping Piper by bringing oxygen to the edges of the wounds, slowing all elements to allow the healing process to close the wound. Uh, they have a pet-sized chamber at the medical center in Boca Rotan, Florida. It's only one of its kind in South Florida. Each treatment is $125. So, uh, well, I saw where it was an hour and 15 minutes at a time. Uh-huh. So that's about what, uh, 25 bucks or 15 minutes. Yeah. Now, if that was a human, I wonder how much that would have cost. Oh, my gosh. The pre-crazy prices or before, I'm going to say even the best of times, you'd have four or $500. But nowadays, well, uh, they use them a lot for carbon monoxide poisoning now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And those are those small personal units. And I bet you're spending, you know, uh, you know, huge amounts of money. That's going to be ER plus critical care type of pricing. Right. 
Well, he was saying it was between 10 to 40 treatments, depending on what you're treating with the animals. So you're talking 1250 to $4,500. You really got to be an animal lover. <laughs> A lot of people are. A lot of people will spend that type of money. Well, you know, just like family to some of them. It is. I've got family members who would do that. I'm still trying to decide if I would do that for my kids. <laughs> oh, you better delete that part from your. Uh... Yeah, should I edit that one out? <laughs> no, yeah, I, yeah. My, my kids are great. Don't don't send the hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next one we have on the list to get me out of trouble is uh, divers called in to inspect and repair wells during a flood. Another one of those occupations that you really don't get talked about during career day. Uh, well, I'm curious when they say well, exactly, are they talking like a hole in the ground or something bigger? Well, what I, these are is they're submerged natural gas wells. And uh, let's see, where are these in Canada? East Saskatchewan. And uh, the diver, Greg, says 18 months ago, uh, if you had told him that he'd be scuba diving in East Saskatchewan, he would have scoffed at the idea. Uh, it is due to record flooding. Uh, they had heavy flooding in the rains in 2010. Then they had record-setting snowfall last winter. It saturated the land after the spring melts, and it enveloped natural gas wells in the southeast area. There's roughly 70,000 gas wells in operation. So the diver's job is to examine the equipment at the wells. They take photos if necessary, and they report emergency conditions. They're also equipped with tools if they need to shut a well head off. So I'm imagining this has to be you know, just like pipes coming up and then there's a wellhead. You know, you kind of see them around here a little bit. Not not common in Michigan, but there are spots where we've got uh, some wells. Well, now that you said that and I read a little more, when they said wells, my first thought was your water well oh. <laughs> that you go. That's what I was thinking. As soon as you said wellhead, that's a totally different item. Mm -hmm. um, and doing scuba, I'm sort of curious because generally – uh, that seems to be mostly hard hat because you're at depths generally for a lot of the wells that you're going to be down there a while. Yeah. Well, I, what I'm thinking they're, they're doing here is this is only submerged because of heavy snow and rainfall. So I'm not picturing that they're down that deep. I'm just thinking that we're, they're probably in five to 10 feet of water as opposed well, to. Well, he's talked about, he talked about a half kilometer wide ice pack being pushed around by strong winds. And big chunks of free-floating ice. So that sort of sounds to me like a rig. Hmm. Yeah, in that case, I would think it'd be a hard hat. I would want that, especially if I've got hunks of ice above my head. I'd like to have a lot of air while I'm down there, not to mention a little hot water. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting. We need need a little bit more details. But there's a job for you if you want to have scuba diving as a career. Uh, this next one, I found the article so long ago. Five days ago, I can't even remember what it is. So this would be like a surprise. Oh, you mean the uh, scuba club with all the kids again? Is that Make what a this wish? Is? Yeah, Birmingham, Atlantis, 4:49 is a bidding for a slice of cash handed out to community groups across Teesside. Yeah, I, didn't we cover this one last week? Uh, not that one, but it was the one like it. We seem oh. to be getting these every uh, every couple of weeks now. Yeah, may, maybe uh, everybody asking for money, but a £50,000 wish campaign. They're trying to get a piece of the cash. 25-strong group is 
mad about marine life and uh, they're trying to get some money. So um, they're saying, uh, well, and when I saw this, it made me think of our dive club. I never thought of asking for money just for the normal diving because they're they're talking about, uh, you know, they do trips. They're planning a dive trip to Cornwell. Uh, They've been to Germany. It's an expensive sport. And uh, for the not-for-profit group, which meets each Friday night at one of the local swimming pools, and there's a continuous running cost to meet. So it's expense to maintain all equipment because you got to get the tank service checked and bring apparatus. So I don't well, know. Well, it's not just a swimming gear because if you look at the pictorial, I dare say two-thirds of those are kids. Oh, okay. Well, that would make sense. Maybe if it's a youth organization, I'd... Yeah, they, they they do. Farther on, they talk about 11, 14, and 18-year-olds. So, yeah, they're wow. – yeah, but they're – But it's good to see they're encouraging diving, group activities, something for the kids to do. Exactly. And they can build on it when they get older. And that leads right on into the next article, which is uh, some dive vocation training aimed at youth. And this one's in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The seas uh, surrounding the Virgin Islands are – excellent for diving and uh, this program they're putting on down there is actually being led by the council of boy scouts in america and they said of all the groups that are out there they said the boy scouts uh, they thought made the most sense to operate the marine uh, vocational program so the, the instruction was first offered and run by the st Dom, uh, thomas diving club uh, we had a meeting with parents and kids and asked them to sign a learning agreement that focused on attendance, arriving on time, and completing the homework. In other words, reinforcing responsibility. We told them if they could do these things, we would assure that they would succeed. And succeed they did. 35, 13 to 24-year-old Boy Scouts and Venture Scouts to date have completed the six weeks Patty Open Water Diving Certification course. Two-thirds of these scouts have gone on to take Patty Advanced Open Water. One-third have become rescue divers. Six are now working on dive masters. Uh, and one scout has completed his rescue diver, was hired last summer to work at the Coral Ocean World Park. So excellent program. Scouting just this last year added uh, scuba to their program. Was it last year or the year before? It's only been a couple years now. Uh, so excellent program. Great way to get young divers engaged. Yeah, I see that. I, it says the Boy Scout, which I can understand, and then says Venture Scouts. And since I've been out of the scouting for quite a few years, the one that followed Boy Scouts was Explorers. And I used to be an assistant scoutmaster for one. They used to have two items. One was called the Air Scouts and the other was the Sea Scouts. And I could definitely see this as part of the Sea Scout program. And maybe the Ventures is what they have now because I understand that a lot of the Explorers have been co-ed. Yes. Not just guys now. Yeah, I, and I, I have an inside track being a den leader and a and the cub master <laughs> for the town in here. Uh, and what it does is you have, uh, you know, the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts. Uh, you still do have Explorers, and then you have Venture. And Venture is actually a little bit more the extreme sports, uh, and they, they tend to be a little bit more focused. So. Are they for uh, older, uh, older yes. individuals? Yeah, they, they go up to 24, where I think Explorers was like 16 to 18. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so I think what they're doing is they're extending the age a little bit. Uh, but uh, you can always head on, on over to the Boy Scouts of America site, and they'll give you a program. I'm, I'm assuming since this is the U.S. Virgin Islands, going to be following the American Boy Scouts program. Yeah. Yep, and then in the chat room, they have Scouting, Scout Source, Venture. So thank you for that link. 
I, I may have to look into that, but I, I'm surprised that it goes that that up far up in age. You know, after 18, it's like now you're becoming into an adult venture. And, um, ha, no pun intended. Yeah. To the adult venue. And I find that quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think because you've kind of always had that. I mean, the, the even in Boy Scouts, as they get older, people kind of peel away. Uh, I did Explorers uh, back in the day and. Uh, it was kind of the same thing, and I and I I'm not picturing that they've got, you know, huge amounts of, you know, older uh, scouts, but uh, maybe they got such an investment in time, and it's a way of uh, showing leadership. Well, you know what they said about the uh, the military and the and the scouts. You know, the difference between the military and the scouts. What was that? Uh, the scouts had adult leaders. Oh. <laughs> Uh, at, at, at that age, though, I was in the army, so I don't know about that twenty-four stuff. That's an adventure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's another program. Yeah, co-ed. Come on. <laughs> okay, this next one is the say the Sea Save auction is supposed to be ending soon. Uh, this one was uh, from a couple days ago. Could have ended by now, but uh, oh crud! Darn ads. Here we're back again. Um, so what they're doing is they're doing they're a 503c organization, uh, and what they've got is they have donations of different gear, and the proceeds are going to go to uh, the the C organizations. Uh, some of the the things they're auctioning off are live live aboard trips, Fiji, uh, Maldives. I mean Galapagos, plenty of places I would go. They have artwork, and they also have scuba gear from leading manufacturers. Well, I'm looking at some of the items there. For example, Dynamic Flash CNC YS2550 Pro. It's a value of $1,000. The leading bid right now is $616. Well, you're probably getting pretty close to retail, aren't you? Well, it looks like that. But, man, those trips look awful nice. This is 12 days all-inclusive. Liveaboard Sea Queen or Sea Spirit value is almost $9,000. Uh, the bid, leading bid is 4000 at this time. Wow. Uh, so some of these look really, really nice, but wow. Yeah. Yep. So, and I, I've participated in some of those auctions for charities and they're, they're pretty good. Uh, the best thing to do is to have already decided you were going to do it and just plan on paying list because, <laughs> because <laughs> many times that's, that's where they end up at. But if you can't, uh, you know, afford to buy the gear at auction, maybe you'll get lucky and, and do what happened in this next story, which is uh, find a camera. Yeah, that's always nice. This is a camera that uh, was not exactly designed for underwater use. A Canon uh, EOS floated in the water for a while and then was discovered. Uh, and then the interesting twist to this, and I'm pasting in the chat room three or four different links, is that through using Google+, Plus. They were able to uh, reunite with the owner, and I've and I've heard articles where they they found the owner, and then other ones where they didn't. So uh, this is a recent article, so I don't know if it's a little bit of a delay or not. But uh, what they're saying is that in August of 2010, a British Columbia firefighter uh, lost his Canon EOS 1000D camera in the Pacific Ocean. Over a year later. Uh, Marcus Johnson, aspiring wildlife photographer, was scuba diving in Deep Bay near Vancouver and found the camera. Johnson brought his discovery to surface and discovered about 50 photos from the camera's uh, SD card. Uh, he took to Google Plus to track down the camera's owner. He uploaded the recovered photos from the waterlogged camera. 
approximately pitch, 50 pictures from the card from a family vacation. If you know a firefighter from British Columbia whose team had won the Pacific Regional Firefight Competition, he has a lovely wife and now two-year-old <laughs> daughter. Let me know. Yeah, it's kind of keep stalking. <laughs> Did he really want to get the photos back or does he want to get a meet introduction to the wife? Uh, I don't know, but because of that, well, not because of that, but what I have done on my digitals and my other cameras is I went ahead and made a screen with my name, address, phone number, and details about my camera on my card. So if I do lose it, instead of somebody saying, well, I kept the camera because I don't know who it belonged to, there's a big, when you open up mine, you know, what pictures, there's a big uh-huh. one there with who this camera belongs to. And it's, it says basically, return my chip if nothing else. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you're just making it tougher for them. They got one other photo to delete when they go to use it. Yeah, but uh, you didn't happen to, l- to learn that one at my expense, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I did that because I, I'm always misplacing things. And I thought, well, my daughter lost her camera. She did get it back because she left it at a place that was nice and would recover those. But I thought, at the least, if I put my name and address in it, there's a chance an honest person will at least send me my chip back or yeah. my camera. That would be nice, too. Yeah, the camera would be nice. I've 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 lost a camera, as anybody who's listened to the show uh, from the first episodes is aware of. Uh, <laughs> so I, I kind of learned the hard way. I don't like learning the hard way, but that was one of them. Well, it's like if you lose your wallet, even if they keep the money, if they send me my driver's license and some of my cards back, it's such a pain if you don't have them. It, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily if you had a thousand bucks like some of you guys carry, you know, my, my lunch money, <laughs> five or $10, I don't care. But if there's some, you know, that's enough of postage to send my driver's license back. That, that would certainly be nice. It's always appreciated. It is. And with that, uh, newfound money, then you could stay at a place like this hotel up in the next article, Hydropolis underwater hotel in Dhabi or Dubai. Or I say Dhabi, Dubai, a Dutch designer, uh, once planned for outer space, but this is closer to some home hydroponics. Never got off the uh, hydroponics. Hydropolis never got off the ground in uh, Dubai. Uh, but it's a. This would be great. I mean, of all the crazy hotels I've seen, this one actually I think would be cool. It would be very interesting to visit. I think you know if they ever get their money back there, you know, for a while they were just going great guns and. Some of the most outlandish and actually beautiful designs for cities and stuff is there in Dubai. You've probably seen some of the pictures. Oh yeah, they've got the the islands and the world, but the what they're running yeah. into is they is they sprayed all that sand everywhere and it's sinking in. And then they but they do have that nice hotel, that real tall glass one. So yes. If you, if you watch on some of the history or science channels, they'll show some of those being built. But this one was projected to cost about three hundred million to build. Uh, it would also have been the world's most expensive hotel to visit. They originally started planning in 2006, uh, but it has not uh, been started. Um, they're planning on having 250 to 300 suites, as well as places for dining, a spa, and a cinema. Uh, but with all that around, who would want to mess with that? And uh, kind of an interesting design. It was a structure with plexiglass reinforced with concrete and steel. You'd have windows that from each room that would be open to the ocean surrounding it. So excellent idea. Somebody's got to build one of these sometime. Yeah. So what? I, what I'm? I'm. I, you know, in my mind, I was thinking of all the different designs that you could have to make something like this viable. You know, so far what we've got is everything's been simple, uh, one or two uh, room places. You still there, Mac? 
Darren? Yep. You can yep. hear me? Did I drop out? <laughs> you, you did drop out for a moment. <laughs> I thought we'd oh, give you a second to. <laughs> that to re- wasn't one of those senior moments. I, I had another call, just a quick item and a plug. Uh, I had a guy just give me a call. Uh, not a guy, but Jim Schultz. Uh-huh. It's like, explain how people can get online. Oh, how how people can get online. He wants to listen to the to the call. He's been trying to get in. He suddenly he, he can't. Okay, what he needs to do is go to TalkShoe, so www.talkshoe.com. Once you're there on TalkShoe, look for show numbers. Goodness, I don't even know my own show number right now. Uh, 73759. 73759. What's that? Okay, um, I may drop off while I tell him that. I think he's still there. Okay. Oh, never mind, you continue and I'll, I'll call him on the cell. Okay, so while well, Max telling him how to get into TalkShoe, if you ever have any problems with that, give me a call. Yeah, and everybody in the chat room is now telling me 73759. I have to type that in every time I, I go in and do a broadcast. you think I would know that a little bit better. But uh, maybe that's a good time to go and talk to you. What we're doing when we do the podcast is we have a chat room. You know, we'd love you to listen on to the recorded show, but you can get in the chat room. One way to get there is you can go to scubaobsessed.com. We have the little banner. You can stream, listen that way, or you can click on in and it will take you right in. Or you can go to TalkShoe, and our show number is 73759. There's two viewers. One of them's the basic, one of them's the pro. They're both free. Try the pro if that works. If that doesn't work, then you want to go back and try the basic one. Uh, You might have to play around with the audio. Uh, Normally it works, but about 1 in 10 or 1 in 20, it might not. So if you ever have a problem, go ahead and drop us an email at the show at scubaobsessed.com and we'll try and give you a hand. Okay, then when you get there, look for show number at 73759. Okay. Okay. So now we've gone from the hotel and we're heading on into another local uh, dive club of scuba divers and they're helping rehabilitate a pool. The pool was slated to be replaced with the budget crunches that we're having all over the world, specifically in Europe. They've been having some rough times. Uh, the budget isn't there to replace the pool. So the Hasling Jin, Din, Jin, Jin, <laughs> Has, Hasling Den, Hasling Den. Yeah, that must be it. Hasling Den swimming pool, uh, in, in East Lancashire. Uh, what they're doing is they're doing a pool cleanup. Uh, the swimming pool, which is 75 years old, which, oh my gosh, other than Roman spas, I can't think of pools that I know of that are 75 years old. Uh, they said it was set to be shut down because of its dilapidated condition, but they've made a decision to keep the pool open, and the, ear, the money earmarked for the pool has been moved to other projects. Scuba enthusiasts have come to the rescue and they're making the facility look best. It was going to be expensive to drain the pool and then refill it to be able to perform repairs and cleaning. So the divers are doing it uh, themselves. Uh, for divers, it's not that difficult, they're saying. It's just basic dive training, but with some voluntary cleaning work can be done at the same time. Uh, and they did a very nice job. I don't know if you went to the site and looked at the picture. Yeah. But in 75 years, that's not a bad place. It's uh, it's long and narrow. It looks like it's got five major lanes, but uh, uh-huh. it looks pretty nice. Yeah, I was thinking that was pretty snazzy. I mean, they've, they've done a nice job in keeping it up. And that's what a pool is. And I, I don't have one, but everybody tells me that's nothing but built-in maintenance. 
Uh, yeah, but they're saying, to, go ahead. You gotta have kids. Yeah. Somebody who's gonna use it to make it worthwhile. Yeah. So they're saying, with the kind help of the divers, been overwhelmed by local people offering to give their time to help with various jobs. Has led to the group being formed called the Friends of Haslingden Pool. The group hopes to have to assist the pool staff with future maintenance work at the pool. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for the support and the kind of offering of help. You know, that's one of the things you know back on non scuba related that I think communities would be much better off if instead of just funding and paying for it, it was more of a co-op. You know, if people help take care of the parks and the uh, different programs and not everything had to have a full-time paid administrator, we might be a little bit better off and taxes might not be so wacky. Yeah, I sometimes wonder how much it's from the... Now, you notice that's in the UK. Yes. If it had been over here, if you didn't have insurance, it probably wouldn't let you do it. Or be a certified commercial diver. Yeah, you'd have to have, have a hard hat diver and... Have to have a tender. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I wonder how, you know, if that's, if we have much of a need for that around here. We got a lot of pools in our area. So, just remind uh, Basic ones I think we've used a lot and I do like is the Bridgman High School because mm-hmm. that is used as a community pool and you can rent it, which to me is really good because it helps defray some of the costs for the school system. Yes. Yeah, and they and they've been having a hard time there. They're between that, they have a they have a very nice pool and a very nice theater, and both of them are having challenges of funding. So uh, my my daughter there, my daughter swims at that pool about five days a week. And this next, go nice. ahead. That's nice. Yeah, she I mean, uh, she's on the swim team there. Uh, one town over, we don't happen to have a, a pool local for our our school, so she's she's over there in Bridgman. But uh, now this next one. Isn't really an article, but it, knowing how much you love subs, uh, this I is, already know about that sub. Now that you mentioned it, I saw it and it was for sale. Yes, that's the and one. Then, them to have that darn thing and have that erroneous title <laughs> on it—that's outrageous. It is, isn't it? So the this SV Seeker, which is a submarine, uh, the owner of it, he just recently sold it. I think a couple weeks ago and delivered it. And then I saw him do this post just this last week on the blog on Facebook talking about all these submarines. So what it looks like has happened is people are just getting together and making books. I mean, they're just like, I don't know what kind of journalism authoring this is, but they're just not checking any facts, just taking pieces together. And they so in the caption, so this is a submarine of somebody that we know in the U.S. made it, and uh, he just... Gosh, what was it? Four or six weeks ago, was still doing some tests right, in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he put it up for sale because he's he's building a large sailboat, uh, which he's going to scuba dive off of uh, around the uh, Central America. And this is a book that was just published in the last few weeks, and the caption next to a photo, which is an actual, which is a photo he took of his submarine, and it says. The U.S. Coast Guard captured a semi-submersible equipped with sophisticated navigation equipment and filled with seven tons of cocaine in the water near San, San Jose, Costa Rica. So, <laughs> The nice part about that, though, that you did print the Facebook one to talk about submarine boat, uh-huh. that had some nice articles if you like subs. Because one, they've got the experimental flying disc. That's a cool-looking sub. Looks more like a dry sub or, a, I'm sorry, a wet sub. But the wooden sub, there's two of those. Those yeah. are great. Well, they made the, the, the wooden sub. See, this is done by Doug Jackson and you know his wife, I'm sure, helped a lot. The wooden sub that's on wheels is one that he made 
oh, about a year and a half ago, we had an article and we covered it. And the idea is a sub would go float. You drop weights to the bottom. You'd lower your ballast, pull yourself up down from the weights. And then the wheels you would motivate along the bottom and then raise yourself up. He actually built that and, and, uh, used it once. Uh, the wooden sub up above is, uh, the guy who bought that seeker. That was what was in his warehouse. So he owns that. He owns the experimental flying disc and the some of the others. So very interesting. I, you know, if you go to the the group, it's called Submarine Boat, and then they've got another one. I'm saying SV Seeker. That wasn't a sub. That's his new project, which he's building a an amazing sailboat. So very cool. I mean, doing a lot of a lot of stuff. And and since we're talking subs for a moment, uh, that event they had up there in uh, Grand Rapids. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, up there when they had the Silver Sides, which is not a mini sub that's a big sub that's a war they also two. had had bring if you had a recreational sub bring it and uh ken sent me a couple of pictures of i think it was three of the nice ones they had there on display there so that's neat stuff Excellent. oh certainly I'd, I'd love to uh to have a sub and uh then before we get to our last news article we're going to jump into some potentially cool gear and this one really isn't all that practical for us as scuba divers, but I just like the idea of this. So what this is, is it's kind of a member, it reminds me a little bit of the Ronco pocket fisherman, but instead of having uh, fishing lures in the end, it has a, a little camera with a bait bucket. And then the your line and reel is uh, lined to a camera. And then above your reel, where you're reeling in your line, is a little LCD color screen. So it does 25-foot align, full-color LCD screen, $59.99. Get it today. This is not a sponsor, by the way. This is just, I thought, something cool. And I'm thinking, how nice would that be if it was just beefed up a little bit? You know, it maybe be beefed up a lot. I'm just curious. You, have you got that picture you're looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. The bottom right where they got the treasure chest. Now, is that taken in an aquarium, and that's one of those ones that about two inches big? I'm sure that that could be, <laughs> that might be. Well, because look, the picture, it looks really good. And if I could buy something for 60 bucks that I could look at a chest that's two or three feet and see that good, I'll buy that darn thing. No, no. I, those, those, I'm sure all those pictures are simulated. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the idea is for grandparents to buy that for their grandkids. So they buy $60 and, you know, uh, but I just like the idea of it. I, I don't think it's really all that practical. But interesting nonetheless. It just it just tells us that now's the time we should be making uh, underwater submersible vehicles. Well, that's a pretty cool article. So, so nice potential. And then this leads us to uh, our major announcement, the, the article that we had. And we did an interview last night that we've recorded and we're going to play back. So, uh, well, quick was, question. Yes? Quick question. You still have one item under your potential gear. Yes. Turkey dive day. Oh, well, turkey dive, but we'll, co- we'll cover that a little bit uh, later on. But the Mud Club did a turkey dive, so we're going to cover that in the segment where we talk about our dives. Sounds so, good. So we, we won't miss that one, but uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do the announcement. We had the Mud Club uh, through Jim Schultz had an announcement that they did at up in South Haven at the Maritime Museum. And uh, we did an interview with him last night because he couldn't make it tonight. He's working uh, I believe as a volunteer fireman. And, uh, so here we go and we'll take questions. You can type them during, uh, the playback of this interview. And then afterwards, uh, we'll answer them audio. So people at home can hear what was going on. 
I'd like to welcome everybody back to Scuba Obsessed. We have a special episode tonight where we're going to be talking with Jim Schultz of the Michigan Underwater Divers Dive Club. And he has an announcement that he made on Sunday. And can you share with us, Jim, what that announcement was? I'd be happy to. Uh, what we announced was that members of the Michigan Underwater Divers Club found or refound a new shipwreck um, about halfway between St. Joe and New Buffalo. It's in 72 feet of water. Uh, the ship is about 80 feet long. And it appears to be a wooden schooner of some sort. Most of the ship is buried in the sand, but uh, there are portions of it that are visible that we've examined and tried to photograph and document as much as we could this past season. And uh, that's led us to believe that what we have is a probably a schooner, two-masted, even though right now all we can see is just one mast. Uh, the dimensions lead me to believe that there probably is a second mast uh, behind the centerboard trunk. It's uh, what people could refer to as a um, shore schooner or a scow schooner. Uh, it has a shallow draft. Uh, there is a centerboard trunk, so it's got a swinging centerboard or drop centerboard, which would allow it into coastal waters. A coastal schooner uh, could go over the sandbars and not have to worry about running aground with the centerboard pulled up, have much less of a draft. Uh, we believe the ship to have gone down sometime after 1890. Uh, and have been built sometime around 1850s or so. But a lot of that is guesswork at this point, just off the few clues that we have. So that's a 80-foot long wooden schooner? And, yes. And, and how deep a water is that in currently? 80 feet long, uh, 20 feet wide. We don't know the depth yet, uh, but the water depth is 72 feet. So it's very diveable for sport divers. Um I've got a relatively conservative computer, and it gives me 40 minutes of bottom time at that depth. And uh, most people in a an 80 won't have anywhere near that much time before they're going to be out of out of air and need to head to the surface. But if you've got the heavier tanks, the larger tanks, uh, you can do a 40-minute dive uh, with a 120, and that's just about right for doing your dive, doing a safety stop, and still getting back on board with about 500 PSI. Now, that's located in the southwest or southeast part of Lake Michigan? Southeast part of Lake Michigan, yes. The southwest corner of Michigan, uh, located between uh, the, the triangle of St. Joseph, Chicago, and Michigan City. Now, how much of the wreck is visible? Right now, there's not a whole lot of the wreck visible. Uh, the way we found it was we had a set of numbers given to us by Don McElhaney. Uh, he dove the wreck back in the 80s of some sort. Uh, Pierce, according to his logbook, only dove it once and didn't have very many notes in it at all. So if he found anything, he would have found it by Braille in the 80s because the lake was really bad visibility then. We went out with side scan and kept getting a repeatable target, but it was a very unusual target. What we had was one piece uh, that came up about 10 feet out of the sand um, and with a few shadows around it. That was it. So we finally decided there was, we, we kept repeating this target and said, we got to find out what this is. 
uh, went out, dropped an anchor. Uh, Ken, Don, and I went down, took a reel out 150 feet to the south, started doing a counterclockwise sweep, and next thing we know, uh, Ken's tugging on the line. I was out on the far end, Don was in the middle, Ken was on the inner circle, and Ken's tugging on the line. Uh, apparently the line wrapped around something, which is what we had kind of expected. And we came back and looked at it, and what we saw was what looked like a railroad tie sticking up out of the sand, about the size of a 12 by 12, uh, totally covered with zebra mussels, just came straight up out of the sand about six feet. And we circled around that, went back out and started uh, continuing our sweep, and next thing I know, the line's tugging like crazy, and Don's looking at me with his big smile on his face. So we went back in the line, and uh, sure enough, uh, we could see a few um, look like piling sticking up uh, in a row, three or four of them in a row. Uh, about that point, Ken and Don were out of air, so they went up, and since I still had the line, I wrapped it around the piling and started following them. Those piling turned out to be the stanchions that would hold the deck rail between the deck of the ship and the rail. Um, the top of the rail was gone, except in one place, there was a piece of railing between the two stanchions. Uh, followed the stanchions up. There were 10 or 11 of them in a row. Uh, and then I was able to see um, something more to the bow. So went up and looked at that and found out it was the, the bow peak, uh, the very center of the ship where the king post, which is right behind the bow, uh, the bow peak, and then right behind that I could see part of the windlass, one far right-hand end or the uh, starboard side of the windlass, and just off of that to starboard on the bow was uh, part of an anchor sticking up. We had one arm of the crossbar, and the very top of the um, circle of the anchor where you would attach the chain. So I saw that, and then we came back uh, down, noticed we had a centerboard trunk uh, with some pieces coming off of that. About that time, I was out of air. So wrapped up the line, moved the, and was able to pull the anchor up to close to the ship, and then headed up the line, and uh, we finished up the dive. Uh, pulled tight on the anchor line, so we were basically right above the ship and grabbed the numbers. So then Ken, Don, and I each kind of made a sketch of what we saw, what we remembered, and went back the following day with Ken's video camera uh, and started uh, diagramming, measuring, and documenting. We got about six dives in last year. We found the wreck October the 10th, 2010. Uh, we got about six dives in on it last year uh, before the winter weather blew us off the lake. We spent the winter researching possibilities, uh, came up with a very short list uh, because nothing seemed to fit and nothing was supposed to be sunk in that area. So we went back out this year to double check our measurements, do more photographing, uh, trying to get more measurements, more information and then have been working throughout the season trying to get uh, information on you know, lost or missing schooners or possibly sloops that went down. The difference being a sloop has one mast, one set of sails, and a schooner 
has two masts. So right now, we, all we can see is just the stump of one mast that's broken off. That's just in front of the centerboard trunk. Uh, but we haven't been able to find anything uh, behind the centerboard trunk. So we don't know if that mast was there and broken off or if there never was a mast there. And we just had a very long uh, mainsail on this ship. Now, as, as far as names, do you have any any prospects or what is the ship going by currently? Well, we're calling it Max Rec in honor of Don McElhaney, who gave us the original numbers. Uh, we thought it only fitting since Don provided the numbers that uh, we name it after him until we can put the true name on the ship. And so uh, our, our goal is to try to identify this wreck, uh, run the history down, contact any uh, descendants of the people who are on the ship, and let them know, you know, close the chapter on this mystery wreck. Identify it, notify families, uh, and write the final chapter for the life of the ship. Now, as far as uh, that location, there weren't any other ships that we've been able to turn up? Nothing that went down in that immediate area. Uh, there's a number of ships that are reported going down near Michigan City. Uh, there's a few near New Buffalo. And there's quite a few around St. Joe. Uh, but nothing that's reported, you know, halfway between New Buffalo and St. Joe. And that's where this thing is located. Now, with the measurements of the vessel and some of the construction, what is the approach you would use uh, for cross-referencing? Is there a database? that you're able to look at? There's a number of databases. Uh, David Swayze has an excellent shipwreck database that you can search online and you can use the length and width of your ship uh, to search it. So we've been through that database, or I've been through that a uh, number of times, uh, coming up with just anything that's a possibility. Uh, but it's interesting because many times the newspaper reports uh, are wrong. Ships are found in locations where they could, shouldn't be. Uh, but what I've tried to do is rule out the ships that were run aground or known to have sunk, uh, I say sunk, known to have broken up or been beached or salvaged uh, or run aground. Kind of scratch those off. And what we're looking at or what I'm looking at is ships that were reported as missing, location unknown, uh, especially ones that were, you know, running between St. Joe, Michigan City, Chicago, uh, New Buffalo, you know, making ports in the southern part of the lakes. And so with that gave me a list of about six or seven. And then I've started going through the details of those ships. Uh, you know, were there any survivors? Because if you've got a survivor's account, usually they're pretty accurate to where the ship went down. Uh, the sailors in the 1800s were amazing. If they said they were 20 miles off shore from someplace, the wrecks that have been found have generally been pretty close to where these guys said they were back then. But we've got nothing that I've been able to find so far that uh, reports a wreck, um, you know, in the area where, where Max Wreck is. So uh, we're looking for ones that more than likely were complete losses, total loss of life, no survivors. Uh, been looking for, you know, newspaper reports of things that may have come up where wreckage may have come up onshore. Uh, the design of most of the sailing ships, 
mid 1800s, late 1800s. They were designed that the cabins would break free and float loose when the ship sunk. It was kind of a built-in lifeboat, if you would, or life raft, uh, because we've got no indication of a cabin on this. So, you know, those cabins may have floated for a while before they finally waterlogged or turtled and sunk. But uh, so far, we're it's just a mystery wreck. Now, you'd mentioned that there were what looked to be pilings. Now, are those the posts along the rail? Those are the posts along the rail, the stanchions or the posts that would have held the uh, the rail there. Uh, the sand pretty much is right at deck level. Uh, we've got just a little bit of, well, the full length of the centerboard trunk is visible and that's about 20 feet long um, and there's uh, an interesting characteristic that we've been researching but it hasn't helped us yet there's iron rods uh, that come off the centerboard trunk and have turnbuckles in them and go all the way out to the hull on each side of the centerboard kind of like a uh, a cable or a rod to help hold the the hull in place and strengthen it to the centerboard. What we have not seen uh, are any knees, the L-shaped brackets that commonly are right underneath the deck and attached to the hull of the ship. So we don't know if, you know, when this went down, if it might have had a cargo of something that would float like lumber. Um, Most lumber schooners were loaded in the hold with lumber and also on the deck And when the ships would go down, that green lumber, whether it was sawn lumber or, you know, just cut logs, wanted to float. And they would rip up the decks uh, and break the decks free on many of the wrecks. You know, another possibility is when wrecks went down and they were found in the early to mid-1800s, they would go out with a clamshell. And that's how they would salvage the cargo off the wrecks. They would just clamshell, uh, reach down, grab it with a clamshell cable, pull it up, and, you know, drop it onto another boat. Uh, so it's possible this thing could have been clamshelled, but you would think if it had been clamshelled, the centerboard trunk would have been torn up, these bars would have been torn up, and there would have been some record of a salvage operation on this ship. And we've found none of that so far. So what we've really got is a mystery, and it's, it's very intriguing to me. This ship is just sitting there, no history, no story, doesn't belong there, and that's why we, you know, I'm so fascinated with it. Now, you'd mentioned the the metal bars or or turnbuckles. Have you ever seen that in another ship? I have never seen that in another ship. Uh, We've talked with uh, David Swayze, Brandon Ballard, and uh, Pat Labati, who are probably the three uh, most knowledgeable shipwreck historians in Michigan. Um, Brendan has uh, extensive work in Lake Michigan on shipwreck histories, Um, and this is not something he has run into before. He agreed that it probably was there to strengthen the hull, but couldn't recall ever seeing it on any wrecks before. And that's the same information I got from Pat Lavati over at the uh, Underwater Preserve uh, the National Preserve mm-hmm. over in uh, Alpena. So we've uh, tried to recruit assistance from the best that we know, and so far everybody's scratching their heads saying it's different, it's strange, 
So I'm sure the clue lies buried under the sand somewhere. You know, we have identified uh, one, two, three, four. We've got about four or five dead eyes on the ship. Um, these are pieces that would be attached to the hull, the, the hull dead eyes. And we've got a couple of hearts, which are very similar to a dead eye, except where a dead eye has three small holes where each hole would take one rope. A heart has uh, almost like a smile in the face, and you would put all three ropes through one hole. And they're a little easier to adjust than a dead eye is. Dead eyes are more permanent adjustments. You tighten them up once and hopefully you don't have to tighten them too much often, where a heart is used more for uh, more frequent adjustments. Now, you'd mentioned that there was an anchor. How is that anchor in relation to the wreck? Well, we have an iron stock anchor, uh, which is off to the right on the bow on the starboard side. Um, when we did some looking around that, we did find some pieces of wood plank underneath the anchor, which leads me to believe that the anchor was not set when this ship went down. It was still uh, on the deck, and part of the deck broke away. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but this is an iron stock anchor. It has an iron crossbar. Um, ships up until around 1890, most of the ships, just about everything in the Great Lakes, had wooden cross stock anchors. They were wood crossbars. Um, the wood crossbar was used, one, because they wanted to make sure that when that anchor went down, the flukes, the metal was on the bottom and the wood was on the top, so it actually would float the anchor a little bit when it went down. But then uh, later on, they started going to an iron crossbar anchor about 1890. We do have an iron crossbar anchor on this, so that indicates it sunk sometime after 1890. Um, there are some unique characteristics to the centerboard trunk. That's another clue for the age of the ship. Um, I've got to get back to Bowling Green University because there's some information there that I failed to copy when I was there last time. But I noticed that there was some information about a change in the construction method to the centerboard trunk. And I want to go back and see if our centerboard is, you know, the old method or the newer method and when they started changing over that construction method so that we can get an idea, uh, you know, another idea of when this ship would have been built. Um, we did learn a little bit about the windlass this year. Uh, we have what I'm going to call a mechanical windlass. Um, I sail on Friends Goodwill. That's a replica ship from uh, drawings of a ship that was built in 1810. And on Friends Goodwill, we use... Uh, best way to describe it is a wooden stick that we put in the windlass and pull on it to turn the windlass. So it's truly a, a mechanical, you know, uh, put the stick in, turn the windlass, move the stick to another hole, turn the windlass, you know, a deal like that. Later on, a mechanism was developed much like a bilge pump uh, that would, when pumped up and down, would turn the windlass, you know, a 16th or a 32nd of a turn every time you would crank it and pump it. So there are signs on our windlass that it had notches 
for this mechanical uh, turning mechanism versus the old, you know, stick and spoke type of method. So there's another clue to the age, but again, we've got to investigate when that transition occurred. So I'm guessing this boat was probably built sometime before the Civil War uh, and sunk sometime after 1890. Now on the chain, I mean on the, the anchor, there's also some chain, isn't there? Right, there is some chain. And the chain we have on this is what I, what's called figure eight chain. If you think of a normal loop of chain like a zero, uh, you've got you know, the link above and the link below both going into the same hole in the center of the chain. What we have is more like an eight. There's a cross piece in the middle of the chain, and the link above goes in the top part of the eight, and the link below goes in the bottom part of the eight. So there's another you know, detail that if we can find out when that kind of chain went into use or went out of use uh, can help with dating, you know, all these pieces. It's, it's just taking all the clues, trying to identify them, putting them all together and saying, well, you know, we, we know nobody built ships like this after or nobody built ships like this before that help you to put front end and back end dates on your when it was built and then the same thing for when it was sunk. Now, on the uh, stern of the vessel, uh, would there have normally been a rudder there? There would normally be a rudder, uh, yes. We found the rudder post. Um, I say the rudder post. We found a large stern post. That's the piece that we actually saw first. It's about a 12 by 12 post, and the back side of the post is curved inward. I always get concave and convex confused. It's curved inward so that a round uh, rudder would have fit right up against it. And would that have been but attached like probably with strapping or something? Probably with strapping, right. Now, the, the actual rudder post and the tiller uh, are gone. We haven't seen any indication of that. It's very possible that the bottom part of the rudder is, you know, below the sand level, but we'll never know until... Uh, we start getting to that level in the archaeology and have uh, documented everything above it first. So, what are the plans uh, for the for researching the shipwreck next? Uh, what what do we hope to accomplish uh, in the next six to eight months? Well, through the winter, unfortunately, we're probably not going to get back out there to take any more measurements or ask find out any more questions. Uh, one of the f next items on my agenda is to go behind the center post or behind the centerboard trunk, I'm sorry, and see if we can prod with rods uh, or move some sand and see if there's any kind of a indication of a mast behind that centerboard trunk. Another place to look at that is we have found one dead eye on the port side and on the starboard side behind the centerboard trunk but only one dead eye. Uh, if there were a mast there, there should be at least three dead eyes, or two minimum, normally three, that would support the rigging uh, that goes up to the top of the mast. The fact that we haven't found those multiple dead eyes, um, either they're not there or they never were there. 
The other piece is if we go back and we find that there's no indication of any strapping, no indication that there ever was uh, multiple dead eyes back there, then that pushes us towards this being a sloop, a single masted. And the dead eyes in the back would have been your backstays to keep the mast from going forward. So that's one area we want to, uh, we really would like to research if we could get back out there one more time this year. That would be the first place I would go to focus. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to take the information we have, keep trying to dig into the you know, as much information as we can get about the ships that are possibles. Uh, I said earlier I've got a list of six or seven so far that we've identified that could be possibles for this wreck. And I just want to keep digging into them. I had one possible that really looked good until we found out there were reports that it sunk uh, way up in northern Michigan. So we're trying to um, look into the newspaper articles that supposedly reported this ship being sunk in northern Michigan and find out what was the source for that article. You know, was there a survivor who saw it go down? Was there a passing ship who saw it floating? Um, you know, did people just assume it went down there because it was going from Milwaukee to Holland or Milwaukee to Traverse City, possibly? You know, it's with the currents in the lake uh, and these wooden ships, especially if it was a, a lumber schooner, if it was carrying a cargo that could float, it's very possible that this ship um, was derigged in the storm you know just stripped of all its rigging uh the lumber on the deck could have torn the ship up completely uh basically made it a wash but it never really sunk it just you know like a log that will float just below the surface or partially under the surface for a long time this ship may have you know been abandoned or the crew washed overboard and everyone thought it sunk up north, uh, but the wind and currents brought it down south until it finally waterlogged enough that it settled where it did. Are, are there any records of how far, like what, what is the longest where anybody's heard of that happening with a wreck? I can't say off the top of my head. We've got to go back and look at some of the wrecks that were found. I mean, there are stories of, uh, a number of wrecks that were reported lost in Lake Michigan that were found in Lake Huron. So they had drifted, you know, all the way through the Straits of Mackinac uh, and ended up on the Lake Huron side of the bridge. Of course, the bridge wasn't there then, but, yeah. you know, uh, so it's it's one of those where I haven't dug into that yet. Uh, if we can identify what this ship is through some artifact that is yet to be uncovered, uh, then we can go back and start digging the history up and say, well, who said it sunk here and why? Well, we also have Mac on the line with us. Uh, Mac, why don't you say hi for a second? Uh, I was going to say, I probably put him to sleep the way I was dragging on. Actually, no, you did a very nice job and gave me time to make a few notes that either we didn't remember or I haven't brought up recently. So some of this might be new. Yeah. Uh, anyway, hi. <laughs> the, the key item when we were talking about it, I went with Jim up to Bowling Green. And in fact, I did find one document uh, that was useful. Uh, let me look at my notes here. because That's what I did do. It was called the Wooden Ship Building by Charles Desmond. 
And in one of his pictorials, actually two, uh, and I have the figures and the pages down. So when we go back, we're going to try to make a copy of that page. But it gave examples of tie rods and straps used in servo boat construction methods. And that looks to be the same type of device that is on our centerboard. Oh, great. I'm glad you saw that because I missed it. Right. So I, I have the page numbers and the figures. And one part is called Midship Construction. And that was by Cox and Stevens. But the the information was based on that of the construction of a four-mast stu- uh, schooner. With the longer length, I can see where you may have had that kind of mechanical holding together and not necessarily with an 80-footer. But at least we have a little bit of something to go on. Uh, the second item that Jim mentioned was the anchor and the vintage of the anchor. Uh, one part of the item there is that it is connected to the figure eight chain by a clevis. Normally, the anchors were not Using the clevis, they were attached permanently with a ring to the anchor itself, which would give credence to what Jim was saying, that it may have, in fact, had a wooden stock anchor. It was replaced with a newer version. Now, what would cause somebody to replace a wooden stock anchor? Uh, Any number of things. Uh, the, the biggest could have been, you know, if this ship had been in a storm before, uh, that wooden stock could have broken or been damaged. Uh, the other piece is, you know, when wood is put underwater and then brought back up and it gets wet and dry and wet and dry and wet and dry, it will weaken and rot. Uh, so it's very possible that the wood of the woodstock anchor was was rotting out and it's time to replace. And so they just happen to, you know, put a a new style anchor. You know, it's the same way today. You know, why do we replace our old computers with a brand new one? It's bigger, it's more powerful, it's easier. Well, this uh, iron stock anchor may have been lighter, but stronger, uh, easier to handle, or for some other reason that we don't know, they may have gone to an iron stock anchor versus a wood stock. And and in talking about the anchor, we did notice uh, another feature that in the bow that we do have exposed is the hawser pipe openings for the chain. The one on the starboard side has the figure eight chain going through it. So we are making an assumption there is a chain locker way below the sand level. There is no chain either in the hawser pipe on the port side, nor is there external chain that we can determine on the opposite side of the, uh, uh, the windlass, which would indicate that perhaps it had only one anchor out or perhaps it even pulled the other anchor all the way through and lost the chain. So for to make any speculation of uh, what's there under the sand, what 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 would be the dream? Oh, the dream. Other uh, gold or uh, yeah, I was gonna say pirate treasure, but you know that that's highly unlikely. I don't know of any pirate ships in the Great Lakes. So uh, the one I would really like to be able to identify, and just because of the the local history. There was a ship that was carrying schoolhouse furniture uh, to Benton Harbor. They had built a new school and uh, had ordered furniture. The furniture had all been shipped, but the ship went down with um, no trace, no survivors, and the, the furniture has never been found. Interesting, uh, reading some of the articles about that, there seemed to be more outcry and upset that they were going to have to buy the furniture again 
and pay for it than there was for the loss of the ship and the loss of life. Oh, my. <laughs> but, you know, that has such a local connection to Benton Harbor, St. Joe. Uh, that would be uh, an interesting one to find. So are there, is there any chance with the uh, winter that uh, the, the wreck site could change? I fully expect that it will change over the winter. Um, you know, things that were uncovered this year from the, the currents and sand and a little bit of work we did uh, may be very much covered up next year. And uh, things that weren't visible this year may be visible next year. Uh, we saw differences. Well, I, I think we saw about six inches of sand shift around in certain spots. You know, when I was looking at the videos from the very first couple of dives on the ship to the videos we took the end of this season or the beginning of this season, uh, there were places where six inches of the ship were were covered up that were visible last year. You never know what you're going to find. We've been out there one weekend and had great visibility and gone back the following weekend and had none. It's hard to tell what we'll see next year. Were you able to determine if the wreck was within the uh, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve? Uh, we believe it is within the preserve, but it really doesn't matter because the the state uh, treats all wrecks in state waters the same, whether they're in a preserve or not. So, you know, it would be really nice if this one, you know, officially fell within the boundaries that have been set for the preserve. Uh, we'd love to see the preserve organization take stewardship of this wreck and do the full archaeology. Uh, there's a to really understand this wreck, there's a tremendous amount of sand that needs to be moved. You think about a wreck that's 80 feet long, uh, 20 feet wide, and 10 feet deep. Uh, you know, you're I don't know how big an Olympic pool is, but uh, you're talking about excavating a really good sized pool to get all that sand out of the inside of this wreck and to see, you know, what's there and what's around it. So I uh, would, would definitely welcome and support uh, working with the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve uh, Committee and that organization. I know uh, the preserve last year, last year, two years ago, did, no, it was last year, I'm sorry, a little confused. Last year, uh, in the winter, they ran a class for basic underwater archaeology. And I went through that class myself last year and used a, a tremendous uh, amount of the techniques that they taught us in the little bit of uh, documentation that we've done so far on this wreck to be able to get the measurements, the line drawings, the triangulation, so we've got things in the right perspective, uh, making sure we take video of everything, uh, you know, as it is. Uh, so... Uh, I'm sure that uh, Peggy and the group from the preserve will be running more classes uh, this year, especially if they've got a project uh, that, uh, you know, you can definitely foresee working on. It's one thing to take a class and say, yeah, let's go do a wreck. But it's another thing to say, let's go find out the real name of Max Wreck. So hopefully uh, divers will get interested in that and uh, contact the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. I know they're on Facebook. They're on the net. Lots of ways to get in touch with them. And I imagine uh, we can make sure we've got some information available at the end of the podcast uh, for contact information to help people get in touch 
with the preserve and express their interest. If more divers uh, would like to go through the archaeology class, um, I'm sure that uh, we can find some people to sponsor it and uh, get a couple classes going. Oh, that would be excellent. And we'll, we'll have uh, notes to that. You can follow the progress of the the wreck that we're currently calling Max Wreck at the Michigan Underwater Dive Club's website, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. And then we'll also have links in the show notes at scubaobsessed.com. And, uh, Mac, you want to jump on? Do you have any final comments before we, we end the interview? Uh, no, I don't. I think you guys did an excellent job. Uh, I'm glad to see the comments on the preserve. Uh, I second those items tremendously so. It would really be nice to have a, a professional group or a group under the tutelage of a professional uh, get out there and give it give it a whirl for that wreck. Uh, it's close. It's new. Uh, what an opportunity for students. It certainly would be. Yeah, and at 70 feet, I mean, it, you know, it's probably not the first couple of dives you want to make of a, a new diver, but uh, it's definitely a very doable depth. Um, like I said earlier, you've with a 120, uh, an old guy like me can still get 40 minutes of bottom time without. Uh, getting into trouble and having a good good surface amount of air left when I get back on the boat. Yeah, and I, and I was diving an 80 aluminum on it, and I got quite a bit of decent amount of time on, on the wreck as well. Mm-hmm. So well, uh, if you're Mac, you just got gills, and you, you can live yeah. down there. Well, I think we're being conservative, and I think that was our motto out there is being safe because we were basically limiting our time for anybody with an 80 to 20 minutes. We had standoff bottles. We had O2. So yeah. we, I think we're doing a good job. We're being conservative. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing I would like to mention, uh, we did put a buoy on this wreck. So, you know, it's going to be easy to find next year. And uh, when uh, this, if the preserve is ready to take conservatorship of it and keep an eye on it and make sure these dead eyes don't disappear, um, we'll put that marker up on the buoy. And uh, hopefully we'll have lots of divers out there on it next year. That would certainly be great. Now we just need to know, find another five or six of these. Yeah, that well, whether to cooperate with us. Yeah, I mean, we we spent a lot of time last year. I I didn't do any sailing last year, which really hurt. But we did a lot of diving. So uh, hopefully next year we'll be uh, doing less diving on Max Wreck and searching more for some more wrecks for divers in Southwest Michigan. And the other item you did mention I'd like to reiterate, though, is the visibility out there has really changed. And there are some days that we had Braille. More often, we had 20 or 30. But we had days out there of exceeding 80 feet. Yeah, there were some times you could you could hover above the bow and see the stern post 80 feet away from you. Uh, th- there were there were times when I, I, at the end of the dive, and you'd start coming up the uh, that buoy line, and you'd look back and you could see the entire wreck all at one view, which is just absolutely amazing. It it made you hate to come up. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Darren, we've got some video of the wreck that we can uh, share with you to uh, link to on the podcast. And one of the closing scenes of that is what you just described. Uh, coming up the line, looking back down the wreck, and, you know, this wasn't the best day, but you can still see about two-thirds of the wreck uh, 20 or 30 feet up the line. And again, we'll have links in the show notes so people can see the videos that we have. And then I'm sure that as we get more edited, they'll be available so everybody can share in the experience. 
And what a better excuse to learn to, uh, to, to find to get certified to scuba dive so you can go and dive on these, these wrecks that we're finding. The only place you're going to find these beautiful wooden wrecks is in the Great Lakes. If we can only get the Kraken muscle to stay off of them, we'll be even better. <laughs> we just need to train them so that they just, just attach to the sand and not to the wood. Absolutely. Now, now there's some DNA engineering that would be worthwhile. <laughs> well, uh, Jim, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it was and, my pleasure. And, and any time you have an update on this or any of the other uh, finds that you have, don't hesitate to let us know, and we'll get you back on. I'd look forward to it. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. That was an excellent interview, Thanks. don't you think so, Mac? I think it's excellent, yes. It was very, very good and very descriptive. It's probably the most comprehensive uh, talk about on the wreck we've had. And for those of you who have been listening to the show, and, and you probably can tell when we start to get a little vague, on what we dove the last weekend, that was the wreck. <laughs> so this was found in the the end of 2010, and we dove it all 2011. I think that was the first. If it wasn't the first wreck dive of the season, it was the second wreck dive of the season, and it was the last wreck dive of the season. So we've got plenty of time on it. And I say plenty, not meaning that enough, but we did get quite a bit. I mean, I don't think we can ever get too much on that wreck. It would be nice to have uh, a lot more people out there and uh, be able to work with the preserve committee to uh, uncover a lot of the material out there that I know it's there. Yeah. Uh, Except you get beneath that sand, uh, you're going to be amazed at what you find. I believe there's a lot of items there. You have to think of that when that went down and that hit the bottom, how much came off. And a lot of that's still got to be there. Not everything's going to be there, but there's going to be a lot. So. Well, I, I would dive it to see the anchor and the windlass by itself. Oh, yeah. That's if, if that's all that you had of that wreck, it is worth diving it. Uh, yeah. In the chat room, and we had a lot of activity in the chat room. Jim Schultz was actually in the chat room. Thank you, Jim, for coming in and answering questions. But that windlass is absolutely amazing. It's in excellent shape. Uh, probably not a whole lot different than from when it went down. Right. I mean, the wear marks and stuff, it's quite unique. I mean, I, I just like to see what's under it uh-huh. and what's a little bit fallen of it. And is, you know, what kind of mechanism did we use to extract the anchor? Because there is no cap span and I do not see that mechanical pawl mechanism yet. So no. we there's some work that needs to be done. And I just hope the museum wants to get out there and have at it. Yeah, and if they do that, you know, we'll let everybody know what's going on. You can follow the wreck on the mudclub.scubaobsessed site. We've got a link. It says Max Wreck. When you click on it, it will show all the posts related to it. As we get more information, we're going to post it there, and you can follow along. Uh, and it would be nice to start getting a, a program together, the archaeological dig on it, and start doing some some serious survey work. We've We've done about as much as we can do with our limited resources and could use a lot more help next year. Maybe we're going to get it. And then in the chat room, they're asking, does the side scan penetrate the sand and give you an image? This, this sand is really too dense uh, for it to penetrate. When you say Mac, Yes, it is. What we get out there and we found evidence is we can find ridge lines, meaning ripples on the bottom that exceed a foot. And what happens is the zebra mussels, the dead ones and quaggas line up in those and we will pick those up and it'll show you like you have ribs of a boat all over the place. And we have been within 30 feet and found 12 inch ridges of the bottom 
and six inch or low or you know, or flat. So that bottom terrain is just very interesting. Yeah. What we need to do, Mac, is we need to take on the Mud Club site and actually put together a page just for the details on the wreck, the photos, the videos. Uh, you know, uh, Jim Schultz has done an excellent diagram showing where the posts are, where the dead eyes are, the hearts, uh, the windlass, uh, so we get that up there. Yep, I, I'm hoping there is something from uh, the preserve, the maritime, you know, for that for that section, and uh, see what they have in mind that we could also put there, because they too may want to put that on theirs as a, an enticement to get other people to come out and help. Yeah, well, I would think so. I would think they get people who are interested. They're doing their archaeological program to to get people to come and dive on that wreck. But it's it's been a blast. You know, it's kind of I have to say, you know, the the best food is is the uh, the stuff you grow yourself and cook yourself. And I think it's the same thing about the wreck. You know, if, if there's something about a wreck that the club found and that we've been on, and and you got a purpose when you're down there, you're documenting and and measuring that just makes it all that much more interesting. And every time I go down, even with what little bit we have there, I see something different. You know, there's stuff I saw the first dive that other people saw the fifth dive and vice versa. It's just interesting how you get tunnel vision on what you're focusing and looking at. And there's a lot of questions like the back of the boat. We've got a wooden board. It's almost like the opposite of a knee. You know, what is that? Why is that at an angle? What do those turnbuckles do? That's yeah. a good question there. I, the turnbuckle one has got my my curiosity peaked really, really, really seriously. <laughs> yeah, and, and you and we got the, the what do they call it the hawse pipe in the front. Yeah, and you've got two of them. One's got the chain coming out. One's got nothing. What's the story about that? You didn't. I don't think somebody put two of them in because they didn't want to use them. Correct. So you know, there, there, there's 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 a story or history in the mast. You know what you know what happened to the mast? How close is that to the to the vessel? Is that something that's just off to the side down the sand, or is it a, a quarter mile away? And one of the items that Jim talked about, I don't remember if we mentioned it there, is the absence of wire rigging. Yes. Would indicate it's an old or a vintage vessel because wire would still be there. The riggings, the wire, the, you know, the, the, the rope type items, there's nothing like that present. Correct. So that gives age to it again. Yeah. So we, we just need a few more details. We're so close. Which is part of the reason I think that it took us, you know, most of a year to announce it, is because we always felt like we were just a little bit away from being able to figure it out. There's enough unique parts of this wreck where you feel that you should be able to pull it up in a database and find out what it is. You know, we we've been unable to figure out what the cargo is, um, you know, which would be very helpful. You know, if you could find coal or lumber or deaths, as Jim had mentioned in an interview, that'd be very handy. Oh, absolutely. So, and, and we don't, we don't think for a moment that we've scratched the tip of this wreck or any of the other ones. There's a lot out there and, and hopefully this next season, we're going to find a few more of them. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that this time next year, I bet we have at least two additional items that will be announced and available people to dive. Yeah. You, you heard it here first. It sounds like a challenge to me. No, that's a promise. <laughs> that's a promise. So, and, and the thing is, I don't think you're exaggerating. Uh, no, I'm not. I, I think I think we'll have we'll have some more. It's uh, you know, it's this this is a golden time I think for this type of recovery or uh, discovery. We you, we can't wait another 20 years to do this because you know we we keep talking about how pristine these wrecks are, but they are slowly breaking down over time. Uh, 
and the zebral infestation and the quaggas are not helping. Yeah. So, and, and maybe that, that's a little something that we had talked about in the interview is that you had dove on this wreck in the past. Yes. Now I know that was at a, a point in time where you're, it's, it's hard to remember, but is it possible <laughs> that you dove on it and didn't realize how big that wreck was? Yeah. So <clears throat> again, I think the lack of visibility back in the old days. Yeah, because if you had just found the stern post and maybe a couple of the rails, yeah. I mean, it'd have been an interesting wreck. But oh well, you know, yeah. who knows what it is? I mean, it, now in your notes, was it even written down as a wreck? Yeah, it had it down as a wreck, and I had 80 feet. But I can guarantee you that if I'd have found that anchor, then I'd have had a lot more information in the logbook. Yeah, yeah, the 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 well, yeah, that whole front, the anchor, the windlass. That would have made it. So I just have to believe that Viz back then was so bad where you only had a few feet and, you know, you you, you saw as much as you thought you, you get. Now, back in the 70s, how, how were a lot of these wrecks found? Were they using the technique of the line being drugged between boats? Uh, believe it or not, uh, probably a large majority of the really good wrecks were found either by fishermen, like the uh, Rockaway, for example. They snagged their anchor and went down to get the anchor, and it's like, my goodness. Uh, the second, there were a number of commercial uh, rescue or dive operations in the Great Lakes back in the 70s. Uh, Harry Zykes, for example, and I'll use Harry for an example. Uh, he has a good number of identified wrecks along our coastline. He was out there doing commercial work, so he was not necessarily interested in going out for sport to see what it was. It wasn't what he was looking for. Therefore, he categorized it, logged it, and he's got it. There are a few commercial fishermen, uh, one we have talked about in our other discussions, I'm not going to bring his name up, that has a map that has a good number of targets, let's say. And for commercial fishermen, you're normally talking, where do I find fish all the time? And you find fish all the time, you're going to find some kind of structure because they don't like open sand. They like places that vegetation will accumulate. They like places that fry can, meaning small fish, can hide in. Um so if I were to have his map, I would dare say we'd have dozens of wrecks next year. Certainly. I mean, and, and again, we use the compass. We use Loran. Nothing nearly as accurate as what you got nowadays. So refinding something is getting better. And the um, quantum leap in electronics, both from the magnetometer aspect and side scan, even the poor man type that we have, are vastly different than what you ever had 30 years ago. Yeah. And, and, and your prediction of two wrecks by this time next year, I mean, Jitka was saying that she's going to get, she's estimating three a year for her. I think so. we're going to go back out and uh, at least relocate a couple of the ones we know are there. I just can't find them again, even though I dove the damn things. You know the ones I mean. Yeah, I, I do. But I also I also think there's others. I Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we're gonna find him. Uh, you know, Dave. Dave showed us some software that he and who's in a chat room uh, that he's been playing around with, and something like that map in the bottom as we're as we're doing stuff. It'd be nice to get a nice picture of the bottom. It will uh, enhance our capabilities tremendously. Yeah, and then also when you get that that quality of photo, uh, it also tells you where they're not. So yes. You're not you're not going back over the same spots. I know this summer we went over a lot of the spots over and over and over again. And there's many times where you thought you'd get it, and then you'd come back around with the scanner, and then you couldn't see it, and then you'd think you see it again, but it was in a different spot. So uh, I still wanted to, one of those one of these times what we're going to have to do is anytime we see something funny is just 
throw a marker over and dive it. It's almost like sometimes you swear there's somebody out there with a rowboat and a string that they're dragging along the bottom so that we can get one shot of it and then they move it. <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. So, uh, but a great, great time. And, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of you get in the area and you can dive with us and we'll gladly uh, show you how the, how this wreck is. And, you know, Jim Kleeman and I have always said, we think, we think there's 20 wrecks within 20 miles of St. Joe that are, uh, diveable and worth a dive right a lot of maybe rubble wrecks but still a good rubble wreck with some nice feature about it is worth a dive oh exactly i mean like you said just that anchor or the windlass alone would be enough and you got two of them in one spot so that's kind of a a, just a must-do dive right and i and i'd like to really get the ones that are about 120 or less uh that way it's open to all the sport divers yes yes Okay, well, not only did we have that announcement last week, but we also had the Mud Club's annual turkey dive, which was in Benton Harbor, Michigan this year in the St. Joe River. We had Dave came down and dove with us. Uh, We had uh, quite a bit of the Mud Club. Uh, We had Bob and Kurt and uh, Jim Schultz and Larry, uh, Jim Kleeman, Mac, myself. I leave anybody out? Yeah, Kirk. Kirk, yeah, Kirk was there. Yeah. Uh, Mary Beth was there. She didn't die because of her ear, and I think Josh was in the same boat. But mm-hmm. they were there, and they participated, so that counts. So if you had to say one word about that dive, what would it be? Uh, thanks for the participation, and I appreciate the surface support because the people who are not there are the ladies who showed up and gave us their support. And if we didn't have the ladies, if the ladies aren't happy, the guys aren't happy. No. Now, and, and then uh, what, uh, uh, the other good word is scotcheroos. Oh, absolutely. That's an extra benefit. Yeah, those, if you have, if you haven't had scotcheroo, I mean, it's worth doing three or four dives and hope that at, when you get up from one of the dives, there would be a scotcheroo. So, well, I always get my share, yeah. the chocolate ones or the others. Oh, oh, yeah. And we didn't finish them off. That's hard to believe with all those divers, we couldn't finish them off. But, man, are those good. I think we're too busy gabbing. Yeah. And then... Uh, Something else was this was my first dry suit dive. You know, we've been I talk- know you're ruined, you're ruined, you're ruined. You went to the dark side. I did. I went to the dark side. Uh, Dave brought uh, a dry suit, one for me to try out. And it was a White's, wasn't the White's Fusion. Uh, I don't know exactly which model White's, but a very heavy duty dry suit. Um, made for somebody a little taller than I am, but unfortunately it wasn't too wide for me. I, <laughs> I would have felt better if it was if it was extremely huge it wasn't it was actually not too bad and uh but uh, it was a different experience driving with diving with a dry suit uh you know it, it was weird being able to leave all my clothes on and throw some undergarments over it and and be able to to dive uh, i added about eight pounds that i had taken off my weight belt earlier in the year back on and i was probably shy about two to three pounds so uh i was able to get down to the bottom in the dry suit and then as i would uh, get rid of the squeeze by putting a little bit of air and I would pop back up. So uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, playing around, but it was good because I, you weren't going to do much else on this dive other than Braille going down the sides. It was, uh, let's say visibility was one or two inches. Uh, I don't know. It is pretty close to uh, Cooper, Cooper river, uh, on that last dive visibility. Well, if you got out there in the middle past the, the rock and got to the sand, you could actually see your hand stretched out. So that's what, two feet or so? Oh, yeah. 
And you got to remember there was treasure found. Yes. We have pictures of some of the treasure there in our, on the site. Yep. Yep. Uh, is that the treasure, the treasure link on the mud club? Uh, it's, it's in these, um, separate photos of the turkey dive. We have that there also. Oh, okay. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, there was, uh, some, some jars found and then anchor, I believe. Yep. Crutch. A, a crutch. Yeah. No, nobody connected to the crutch, luckily. Nobody connected to the crutch. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, in the, in the chat room, they said, I, yeah, I was wearing jeans, almost James Bond, but no, I didn't wear a tuxedo, but I want to do that one time. But, uh. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd say it ruined me, but it just it did give me. It was nice to dive. It gave me a lot more of an idea of what driving diving dry is like. Uh, so as I get closer to actually purchasing a dry suit, uh, I'll be much better. It's gonna be, it's gonna be rough going the, the doing wet this next time, but oh, yeah, and you'll then, manage. You'll manage. Yes, I, I'll survive somehow. So that was the mud club dive. And then afterwards, of course, we got to proverbial food. So uh, we went to Pizza Hut and had a pizza. And talked about diving and wreck diving and just about everything else in between. We certainly did. So, gosh, just the seasons, they keep, they keep coming and there's a good dive for each season. And we're, we're going to be doing river dives probably for another, well, maybe to the end of the month. And then we'll be back to ice diving. Hopefully. Hopefully. You think this might be a year we don't get any ice diving in? No, we're going to get some ice diving. If nothing else, it'll be skim ice. But it would be really nice to get 12, 18 inches of solid, clear ice so we could do some long-term multi-hole dives. That would be interesting. That would be. uh, On my way to work this morning, I drove by one of my – it's a shallow lake, but not far from Singer. And, again, it had ice on it this morning. So uh, I'm just thinking if we can get ice building – on some of these little ponds already, we're going to, we're going to have us have some ice. You know, we've, we've taken all that summer heat out of the bodies of water and we're going to have ice building. Well, you figure the water is below, it's in the forties now. So no more of this fifties. Yeah. And, and to me, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mac, but a lot of the quality of the ice and the ice dive just has to be on how the ice forms. Correct. Now, if we get cold weather with little or no snow and you get that ice building right away, then I think we have a stronger ice. If we get a lot of heavy snow, but it's, you know, in the mid thirties, most of the time, then I think that's when we get that slushy ice and we never really get that hard, like hard cover. Right. You need a hard deep freeze for a long period of time. Yep. So, uh, any plans for diving this weekend? Uh, well, we were, I was over with Larry all day today. We uh, went ahead and finished up probably 90% of the fish getting that ready for next year. And, uh Talking with Jim yesterday, I think there's some talk about uh, quarries between uh, Indian Lake or out towards Dwajak between the airport mm. and downtown. Some quarries go down the 90 feet. Wow. I think they were looking for who has the, the right for accessibility or access. So that's the possibility. Interesting. So we're supposed to have that S word this weekend. So I'm not sure about that. I do know I did check out the rivers. The, the, the S word is that summer? Uh, not. No, that's the snow word my oh. wife might me to use around the house. Yeah. Uh, if you went down the Niles, the banks are overflowing. The river is black. Well, heavy, heavy brown. Um, so it's it's yeah. pretty pathetic yeah. out there if you yeah. want any visibility. And the current's really whipped up quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have uh, probably a week, if not two weeks, before the river is going to settle down. We had flood warnings uh, earlier in the week, and 
uh, what there, what happened is, is Indiana had quite a snowstorm that we dodged, and that's really playing havoc in the water in the rivers. Yeah. So uh, I, I think this would be a time to hit some of these inland uh, lakes and ponds. Well, I'd still like to get uh, those who are going to do the New Year's dive out to the basin, because right now it looks like that's where we're going to be. Unless we get some ice, then it'll be Singer. Mm-hmm. And do a pre-dive if you've not dove that area. So when you're out there in the middle of the night on New Year's, you've been there, you have an idea of the bottom, and you know where the drop-off is. Yep, yep. I've, we, we we did that quite a bit. Uh, was it last year? Yeah, or the year before? Uh, I try to dive it a little bit each year, so I, they sort of jumble together. <laughs> okay, so uh, some, some chance for some uh, getting wet here in yeah. the next week or so. Okay, well, I think we've made it back to that time of the show. Yes. So uh, I did. I did find one. Uh, hopefully, it's it's not too good, which I normally don't have to worry about. So I'm ready. You're ready. So Absolutely. here we go. For their 25th wedding anniversary, a wife decides to treat her husband with a trip to France. After two weeks touring France, they return to the airport for the trip back to America. While waiting for the plane, the husband turns to his wife and says. This was the most wonderful gift I could have asked for on our 25th anniversary. I can't wait to find out what you have in mind for our 50th. His wife leans over, kisses him on the cheek, and says, For our 50th, I'm going to come back and get you. about that time huh it is that time so thank everybody again until next week get out there and get wet and my part is stay safe guys (laughs) take care It's thinking about stopping recording. Thinking is always good. It's going to scream at me. So excellent, excellent chat room tonight. Thank you, everybody, for coming on. Oh, gosh, we had, uh, I don't know. I don't think we had quite many as Rich did on Tuesday, but uh, quite a few. They're talking about dry suits in there, Mac. Don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Call recording has been completed.